2: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, how do global currencies work?
1: I think the next important rival for the dollar will be the euro and not the renminbi because Euroland is drawing a line under its crisis.
2: And, sacré bleu, butter shortages in France?
0: My local baker the other day told me that, monsieur, it's a terrible catastrophe. The butter prices are soaring. We've never seen anything like it.
2: But first, CVS Health, one of the largest retail pharmacy chains in the US, is reportedly in talks to buy America's third largest health insurer, Aetna, a deal that could be worth $66 billion. To discuss what's behind the reported deal, I'm joined by Vijay on our US business editor in New York. Hello, Vijay.
3: Hello there, Simon.
2: To start with, Vijay, do you think you could give us some idea of how big a deal this is? What sort of market share do these firms have?
3: So there are different ways of thinking about how big a deal this is. If we just look at the proposed size of the transaction, for example, something like $66 billion, it uh, sounds very big, but... The U.S. healthcare market is 18% of America's GDP, so it's it's small compared to the the bigger question we're looking at, uh, and that matters because this is not simply a, a deal that involves one part of healthcare. CVS is America's biggest pharmacy chain; uh, it has something like 15% of the chain drugstore market, um, but it's also something that's called a pharmacy benefit manager, uh, and these entities work uh, at the wholesale level. Uh, negotiating prices with the big pharma companies and so on. And so uh, in that market, it has a much bigger presence on some estimates, up to 30% of that market. So it's a bigger player, although not dominant. Uh, Aetna, the target company, is a health insurance company. It's one of America's uh, biggest healthcare companies uh, in terms of insurance, but it has less than 10% market share on on some measures. So none of them has uh, commanding presence in, in their various segments, but the, the combination would be a, a powerful entity indeed.
2: And is that what's driving the, the deal, the need for scale? Because one explanation you hear is that CVS in particular is scared of a competition from Amazon as it enters the farmer market.
3: Yes, Amazon is a is a bogeyman for every industry these days, isn't it? Uh, in this case, with some reason, Amazon has in fact uh, applied for and gotten some licenses to uh, peddle pills in various states. It's done at the state level in terms of regulation. And so it does look like they're serious about making an entry soon. That would be a threat for multiple reasons, not just because they're a formidable competitor, but they tend to be focused on end users, that is consumers, and they tend to drive margins down dramatically in any market that they enter into. Uh, This business, uh, the one of prescription pills, is opaque in America. Uh, People don't know what the price is of the pharmaceuticals they pick up, At the CVS, Uh, usually there's a small co-payment, but the true price can vary from patient to patient. It varies from client to client at the corporate level. And uh, ultimately, uh, that opacity is what helps lots of companies make huge margins. And Amazon threatens that entire way of business. So that is one reason why many companies, not only CVS, are thinking about bulking up. But there's a better reason, I think, that uh, one that's better for consumers that uh, this is about, and that is about vertical integration. Fundamentally, I think vertical integration uh, can be good news for consumers. Horizontal integration, typically not.
2: And by the same logic, presumably your suggestion is that antitrust authorities would not be too concerned about this if it's vertically integrated deal?
3: I think they will look at it carefully. I think they're more likely to give this a pass. But on the other hand, they're probably going to attach some conditions. For example, uh, Aetna, the health insurer, must not be allowed uh, to force people who are using Aetna insurance to buy their uh, prescriptions only at CVS. Now, that would be anti-competitive. CVS currently has a deal in the works with a rival insurer called Anthem to provide some form of pharmacy benefits management it cannot be allowed to have uh, relationships with two of the biggest insurers. So that deal would probably have to be unwound, for example. So there are remedies, I think, almost certainly, that will be attached to any approval of a deal. But uh, on balance, and it's a finely balanced judgment, I think uh, it will probably be approved.
2: Vijay Vaitiswaran, U.S. Business Editor, thank you very much for joining us from New York. Thank you. What are your thoughts on the CVS-Aetna deal? Please do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at at radioateconomist.com. Next. On Thursday, President Donald Trump is expected to announce Jerome Powell as a new chairman for the US Federal Reserve. The announcement will be watched especially closely in the currency markets. The dollar's current dominance and position as a reserve currency mean Mr Trump's choice matters for the whole world. But will that dominance persist? Mary Eichengreen is Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's one of the authors of How Do Global Currencies Work? He explained to Ryan Avent, our free exchange columnist, how most people in economics traditionally think about global currencies.
1: Most people view international currency competition as a winner-take-all game. That there is room in the global system for one true international currency Once upon a time, it was the pound sterling, now it's the dollar. In the future, it may be something else like the Chinese renminbi. We take that on arguing historically that this traditional view is not entirely accurate, that in most periods other than the second half of the 20th century, which is a bit of an anomaly, several national currencies have shared the international stage. We take the point on theoretically arguing that uh, changes in financial technology make network effects where it pays to use the same currency that everybody else is using in your cross-border transactions less important than before. and We take the point on empirically looking at the current state of the international system where the dollar is the single most important global currency but it's not the only one. And presumably there are choices that the United States could make that would influence
3: how quickly it might uh, lose its, its status as the as the main issuer of global currency. What's, what sort of things should the U.S. do or not do if it's con- interested in, in maintaining that
1: status? Financial stability is key for the attractions of uh, uh, a currency for foreign investors in the long run. Domestic so, financial stability? or, or... So I'm just thinking about uh, the global financial crisis and the way in which it seemed
3: almost to strengthen the dollar's role, even though the You know, the locus of the crisis was in the U.S.
1: But I think if there were repeated incidents of that sort, were there serious problems with raising the debt ceiling Mm -hmm. at some point in the future, that would undermine the attractions of the dollar. Number two, international currency status and trade go together. So if the U.S. uh, moves in a protectionist direction and trades less, use of the dollar for cross-border merchandise transactions will become less logical. Number three, alliance politics, the ability to secure your borders and project power internationally, go with international currency status. Countries that rely on the United States for their security umbrella hold a larger share of their reserves in dollars than other countries. South Korea and Japan hold the bulk of their reserves in dollars, and that might no longer be true if the United States begins to withdraw from Asia and China moves to fill that void.
3: Well, so it, it would seem like the the next logical uh, economy to step in there would be China. And yet there are all sorts of reasons why it might be a disadvantage to countries to try to – or an impossibility to accumulate lots of, of Chinese reserves Uh, What are the things that that China would need to do to be able to play the role that the United States plays?
1: The three fundamental things that uh, the issuer of uh, aspiring international currency needs is size, a big platform, grow your economy. China has that, Mm -hmm. or has until now. Stability. China does not have an admirable record of domestic financial stability. It has a debt problem. It had stock market volatility in the past. And liquidity, building deep and liquid financial markets open to the rest of the world, that's the hardest nut to crack. Uh, part of market liquidity and the confidence that comes with it are political checks and balances. So when I go to China, I often observe that every true international currency in history has been the currency of a democracy or a political republic, starting with the uh, Republican city-states of Venice, Genoa and Florence going through the Dutch Republic coming up to Great Britain and the United States and my Chinese interlocutors nod their heads and observe and they're silent. So I do think China is going to have to make progress in terms of rule of law, checks and balances to inspire that international confidence, I would add. I think the next important rival for the dollar will be the euro and not the renminbi because Euroland is drawing a line under its crisis are existential fears about the euro. Those fears have been largely put to rest. Catalonia and the five-star movement in in Italy, notwithstanding. So I think there is a lot of room to run for the euro on the global stage. Barry Eichengreen, thank you for joining us. Thank you.
2: And finally, think of all things buttery, croissant, beurre blanc, crepe and of course you think of france but there appears to be a butter shortage in france with empty shelves in the supermarkets what's going on our european business correspondent adam roberts is based in paris lucky fellow how serious is this crisis? Uh, are French people, horror of horrors, having to resort to margarine?
0: No, the French wouldn't dream of touching margarine. That, that's just uh, a step too far. But the French are getting quite excited about it. If you go onto Twitter, you can see "Burgate" as a, a trending theme. Uh, in the supermarkets, people like to take photos of the empty shelves. And in the bakeries, there's talk of a catastrophe. My local baker the other day told me that, Monsieur, it's a terrible catastrophe. The butter prices are soaring. We've never seen anything like it. So it would be an exaggeration to say there's a panic in France about the lack of butter, but it's something that gets very close to the heart of French culture, French cuisine, the love of croissant, the love of all sorts of delicacies at Christmas. Butter is an absolutely central ingredient to much of French life.
2: But it it seems like only a couple of years ago we were all worried about an EU butter mountain. What went wrong?
0: Well, in many ways, it's a story of what went right, that the enormous surplus of milk and butter that you, you mentioned, that Europe had an oversupply of these things, was gradually tackled. And the butter mountain has melted, the milk lake has been drained, and a quota system for preserving and protecting farmers has gradually been dismantled. And now it's something more like uh, the market working. And so when there's overproduction, prices fall. And when there's underproduction or too much demand, as is the case right now, then prices rise. And, in fact, if you look all around the world, the price of butter has gone up. The the UN, the Food and Agricultural Organization, says that butter prices have gone up by uh, 60% or so in the past year, I think. Uh, and around most of the world, what happens is that people just pay more for their butter. But France is a little different because France has a more regulated economy. The response is not to clear the market by putting the price up, but instead by uh, resorting to other means. And as a more regulated market, that sometimes means shortages. So the supermarkets have their empty shelves.
2: Normally these days when prices go up and commodities are in short supply, an easy answer is to blame China, the increased demand from China. Is that the case here?
0: it's part of the story so one reason for the extra demand for butter is that the chinese are finding a taste for dairy products which maybe wasn't expected a few years ago so the chinese are eating more and more croissant uh, but also in the West, more of us are deciding that butter and fats aren't really unhealthy. The really unhealthy thing these days is sugar. And so there's much more drinking of full fat milk, eating of those croissants and so on in our cultures too. So it's China, it's the West, all over the world, we're turning again to fattier diets. And that's good news for those dairy farmers who are seeing more demand for their products. But it's bad news for the supermarkets in France who can't get hold of the butter for their shelves.
2: And how are you coping, Adam? Is your fridge well stocked?
0: Well, we've we've taken care to hoard and and we go out and we make sure that we have our butter supplies well stocked, that I have hungry children so I'm making sure I'm getting out there every day and loading up on butter.
2: Hadam Roberts, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long.